Hi, I'm Christopher Ward, and welcome to episode number two of Famous Lost Words, a deep dive into the musical archive. Joining me as always, my co-host and the creator of the show, Tom Jokic. Tom is the gatekeeper to thousands of interviews that we have. He's, for me, kind of like Fluffy, the three-headed dog in the Harry Potter books. Oh, no, not again. You're not going to start with that. Uh, okay, so Christopher, we have lots to choose from. I'm still wading through all of these interviews one by one. Lots of good ones, some lousy ones. I listen to all the bad interviews, so you don't have to. I love the lousy ones, though. That's, the, <laughs> That's true. That's just me. That's true. Uh, but if they're lousy just because they're boring, you don't want to hear them. But if they're lousy for right. another reason, you do want to hear them. I don't and- want to be bored. I want to be outraged. Exactly. So this week, we have a really interesting and slightly contentious interview with Glenn Fry from 29 years ago. Mm. It's, a, it's a really interesting piece. He talks about, you know, what great health he's in, that kind of thing, which in, which in retrospect is ironic and, and adds to the tragedy of, uh, of his passing. Yeah. Uh, also, a chat that I did with Mick Jagger in 2001, which leads to the whole issue of interviewing your idols. You're a brave man, sir. W- well, I know, playing this is a little embarrassing. It's not really a bad interview, but I'm a slightly embarrassed by it, and so hopefully when we play these clips, we'll edit out as much of me as we possibly can and just keep most no, of the... No, uh, we're going to leave you in. Okay. Adam, you're paying attention? <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Um, uh, oh, and today on When Rock Stars Attack, a guy who was once part of Crosby, Stills, Nash, and Young, who quickly left the group because he, can, he couldn't stand one of the guys. So you have to mm. guess whether it's Crosby, Stills, Nash, or Young. A lot of good candidates right. there. And the guy is a respected musician, but yeah. he, he's not one of those four guys, okay? So we can keep that mm. off the table. But. Okay. All right. And on the greatest songs of all time, uh, you, uh, you brought me this clip, and it's a great clip, one of, um, uh, one of our favorite groups, and it's a song that signaled a very different sound for this band, and they became more popular and sometimes even more hated because of that new sound. Let's not give the, give the farm away here, Christopher, but oh. it's, a, it's a great clip and okay, a great start story. Start guessing if you're listening. Exactly. Okay, so let's start with the late Glenn Fry. This is from 1988, upon the release of his Soul Searching album. Glenn is in great form. He's happy, healthy, far removed from the Eagles. Remember, they hadn't been together now for a good seven or eight years at this right. point. He's a, a true solo artist in his own right, having had success. Uh, he's also acting. So here's Glenn in conversation from 1988 with Roger Bartel. I went through a period about two and a half years back where a lot of things happened to me all at the same time. I, I got uh, I got sick, not life-threateningly sick, but I had like an infection in my lower tract, and it was due to lifestyle, not eating right, drinking too much, things of that nature. Uh, I also got a div- went through a divorce right at the same time, so I had like these pretty heavy things go down, and I just decided, you know, I'm going to take this negative thing and I'm going to turn it into something positive. I'm not going to let this, you know, get the best of me. I'm going to improve as a person. I'm going to grow. I'm going to learn from this. And, and I'm going to come out of this with my head held high. And, I, you know, the, it just sort of st- – so I just started – I got a physical fitness personal trainer. And I started working out every morning. And then I started to really enjoy it. The first six months was kind of tough, you know. But it's one of these things where, you know, the, what do they say in Texas? If it's the truth, it ain't bragging. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the truth mm-hmm. of the matter is I can do a thousand sit-ups. I can do 400 push-ups. I can bench press my weight. I can do some things that I never thought I could do before. And I think 
like I said, a little bit, a little bit of being sick, a little bit of going through some personal problems, and I guess you'd say the pressure to really deliver and make the sort of solo album I'm capable of making, which I finally made a record that top to bottom I think is consistently good. Uh, and I think that it's really helped me in that regard too. And I think I, I, I felt that I, was, I had to improve. Mm-hmm. And since I started lifting weights and riding the life cycle and working out and eating right, I'm singing better. I'm playing the guitar and the piano as well as I ever have. I'm, uh, I'm obviously feeling better. Feeling better. It really does. It spills over into into the rest of your life, which is just terrific. So hmm. I'm happy to you know I'm happy to say that I've survived the decadence of the '70s. Still have my head screwed on my shoulders and uh, still have my health. You know, health is health and fitness and feeling good. It's like it's just like your love of literature or your love of music. It's something that they can they can steal your car. They can take your money, you know, but uh, they can never take away from you something that you've done for yourself. Mm-hmm. And so I think, you know, you know, knowledge and, uh, and fitness you'll always have. So you know, I'm, I'm quite, I'm, actually, I am quite proud. I'm sort of amazed at myself, as are quite a few of my friends, you know, to think that this was the all-nighter. This mm-hmm. was the guy who wrote Smuggler's Blues and Life in the Fast Lane. And now all of a sudden, here I am. I won't say model of health. But, well, Life uh, in the Fast Lane wasn't pro the decadent way of life. It was anti the way of life in the 70s, wasn't it? Yeah, but we did. There was a tremendous amount of research involved. <laughs> and uh, we had to, you know, we had to understand right, their point right. of view. <laughs> As a writer. Uh-huh. Uh, the physical fitness thing spills over into your love of sports, and I know one of your dreams has always been to own a sports franchise. And I was just thinking... Uh, they just sold the Argos. The they just And the Nordiques. I just, I was there. I could have, if I could have just got up here a couple days earlier, I could have made, you know, I could have made a I bid or something. Maybe the Nordiques, you might have wanted. Yeah. Can we talk about the Eagles for a second? Sure, I don't mind. Why do you suppose the public perception is that there is still a giant riff between you and Henley? I don't know why there was ever that sort of perception. You know, uh, I don't really see the, you know, I don't see it like that at all. I won't even ask you about an Eagles reunion because I know you're not interested in the least in that, so we won't even touch on that. But I do want to ask you about an interview with Glenn Johns that appeared in the Musician Magazine, the new issue. Have you read it? No, I haven't, but I'd be interested to see what uh, Glenn Johns had to say. All right, about. I'll tell you. How many uh, albums did he produce for the Eagles? Four? No, he produced two. Which ones? He did the first two albums. And then he did two tracks on the On the Border album. This is what he says. One of the many things he says. Glenn Fry was far more verbose about being the leader of the Eagles than Henley was. My major problem with the Eagles was the desire of Glenn Fry to be the leader of the band, and Glenn and Don's opinion that their writing was far stronger than anybody else's. They were quite superior in their attitude to the other songs. Don and Glenn became so insecure about the end result that they weren't going to have anything that they didn't think was up to their quality of writing on the record. Now, they may be right to think that way. I'm not knocking them out of hand, but I didn't agree with them, and I could see that it could cause a hell of a cleft in the band. It could easily be dealt with if they just relax a little bit, and the band would stay together as a great musical unit, which it was. So there was a clash, and eventually they became what they considered to be rock and roll. They filled the band with guitar players who played rock and roll. They turned themselves into what they thought a rock and roll band should be. A pretty lame one, in my view. Awful. But they were wonderful at other things. Comment? He's entitled to his opinion. I knew you were going to say that. You know, it's a free, it's a free country, and mm. it's a free world. Do you agree and, with anything he said there? 
Oh, I probably think uh, he's definitely right about the fact that Henley and I felt that we knew what kind of songs should be written for the Eagles. The and Texas that, and saying that, again, that, it ain't that, bragging if it's true. You guys no. were stronger writers? Hey, all I can tell you is look at the record. Glenn Johns was dismissed as the Eagles producer after two and a half albums because of the opinions that he expressed right there, you mm-hmm. know. Glenn Johns was tired of rock and roll. Glenn Johns was burned out. Glenn Johns spent hours, days, and weeks, and months in the studio with the Stones, waiting for Keith to get it together. And the Who. With the Faces, yeah. with the Who. So you take this guy, and what he, he was, uh, Glenn Johns, in his heart of hearts, really, I think, was always sort of a folk music guy. Mm-hmm. He lo- what he loved about the Eagles was the vocals. He would have been happy for us to do songs like Train Leaves Here This Morning and Peaceful Easy Feeling and ride off into the sunset that way. But if you want to have a successful career and you want to sell out, you know, large halls and play baseball stadiums and try to make it to the top of Mount Moolah, I think you have to be more multidimensional than that. You notice that the Eagles never abandon their vocals. We may have added guitar players to the band, but we never we never strayed away from what I felt our strong suit was, which was songwriting and singing. Uh, you know, so some of the stuff that he says, I guess you might say, is true. You know, he's he's entitled to his opinion, but you know, as I say, the albums that Glenn produced, you know, sold around five hundred thousand. Mm. The albums that we did after him sold increasingly more numbers. Mm. You know, well, that we may or may not have numbers. to do with him, but. I think it does. Yeah. I think it's got something to do with him. Oh, wow. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Laying it on the line, Glenn. <laughs> oh, I love that so much. Yeah. I love it because Glenn Fry was so great in that interview because he was facing an onslaught of criticism from someone who had worked very closely with him. Mm-hmm. And so, and he answered it so well. And what else do you expect the Eagles to be, Glenn Johns? Right? He obviously wanted their folk sound to to prevail more than their rock sound. And Glenn answers that in spades. And, of course, their rock sound, especially with Hotel California, you know, led to superstardom, but it also was great music. Yeah. You know? I don't think that's the producer's role to make that kind of call, that, that sort of umbrella call about what the sound should be like. I mean, their, their job is to record the band, get the best possible performances out of them, maybe inspire them to greater heights in the studio, help them select the songs, yes, but not to say, no, this is your sound. Yeah. But Glenn Johns had a book out called Sound Man. It came out last year. Have you seen it? Read it? It's terrific. And I have he, not, no. Because he, you know, worked with The Who and The Beatles and The Stone. I mean, the, the, the Who's Who, the elite. Yeah. And he pulls no punches. And it's great. That's great. That, that sounds like a, a, a great read. And you know what? We could probably talk for an hour and a half just on some of the best books we've ever read and, and only scratch the surface. Mm-hmm. So it's called Sound Man, and it's by Glenn Johns. Glenn Johns, yeah. Right. And Glenn is G-L-Y-N for, the, uh, for people who don't know him. But he is one of those people that you do need to know, even though mm-hmm. he's kind of the bad guy in, that, in this particular scenario with Glenn Fry. Uh, with Glenn Fry. <laughs> <laughs> with Glenn Fry. So, yeah, but he's, he's someone that is... Uh, has a has a real place in uh, rock and roll history, and we're going to talk about someone who has a who has an equally big place in rock and roll history in uh, in an upcoming segment in this show. He's so. not a museum piece either. I mean, he no. worked recently with Band of Horses. Oh, right. Okay, so 
one of the other things I wanted to say about that is, you know, the tragedy of Glenn talking about how healthy he was, mm-hmm. how much working out he's doing, and the fact that it was, you know, ultimately, you know, probably his lifestyle and um, and some of the, uh, you know, the behavior of the of the seventies that eventually caught up to him, so that the road, damaged him. The road is hard enough on you. I mean, I know mm-hmm. I played in bands and was on the road, and and one of two things happens. Or maybe both. It either pulls you together as a unit, yeah, or it just reveals all the cracks and fissures in the group and makes them bigger and wider and deeper. Right. Um, as I say, both can happen. But I, mean, I think the Eagles were a case where the more time they spent together, the tougher it got. Yeah. And when you have two, you know, A personalities, Type A personalities like Glenn Fry. And uh, like Don Henley, who are both very opinionated guys, very strongly opinionated, that can that can be a wonderful thing if they accept their roles as each other's kind of someone who critiques the other person, but also is ultimately someone who has their back. And once you feel yes. like I think that that the other person doesn't have your back, um, that they're only critiquing you, then then I can see how a rupture would take place. Well, there's a bit of the Lena McCartney to that relationship, mm-hmm. as there are in so many collaborative ones, Yeah, um, where they did critique each other's songwriting process and made the songs better. Yes, until uh, John Lennon went on record saying he hated some of uh, Paul's granny music. Like, <laughs> <laughs> well, I was thinking of, uh, of Glenn and Don, but yes. yes. <laughs> Coming up next on Famous Lost Words, Tom's chat with Mick Jagger. You know, Christopher, I'm hoping that everyone will forgive me because I am a little bit embarrassed by this interview. I know I did a decent mm. job on it, but it's just one of those things where I feel like my voice was too high. I was too nervous, and uh, and it really was uh, nerve-wracking to interview one of my uh, musical icons. So, uh, please be gentle. Please be gentle when you listen to this uh, next interview with Mick Jagger. So, now we go back to late 2001. Mick Jagger has just released his third solo album, Goddess in the Doorway. I'm sure you remember mm, that one. <laughs> not so much. You know, I, I did tell him uh, uh, that I loved the album. Um, and I'm sure I meant it at the time, but I cannot remember a single thing from it. That's that's kind of awful, but it also speaks volumes about, about the success of that album. But it did get high praise. I know it got five stars in, in Rolling Stone. Really? And, um, and I know that he worked with Rob Thomas, because this was about a year or so after Rob Thomas had won all those awards with, um, with Carlos Santana for his work on the album, I think it was Supernatural and right. Smooth and the whole thing. Um, and so I get the call that I have exactly seven minutes to talk to Mick. <laughs> now, when, you have, when, you're, you know, when you've been dreaming all your life of talking to some of the biggest rock stars in the world, you're excited about that. And when you find out that you're going to be talking to Mick Jagger, you're very excited about that. And then when you find out you have seven minutes mm-hmm. and pretty much all he wants to talk about is his new album called Goddess in the Doorway... That's problematic kind of, for yeah, you. Yeah, that's that kind of brings down the uh, the excitement <laughs> level a little bit. And uh, but you know, you you go there with with your head down. You know, my eyes were almost closed for the entire interview as I was focusing on what he was saying and also trying to get my next question in. Right. So there's not a lot of interplay between us, other than the fact that on a couple occasions, you'll hear it, I make Mick laugh when I ask him a certain question, and it usually has to do, I think, with his childhood or, be, or having kids. So yeah, he, he sounds really, really loose in this, yes. which, I, I mean, I think is a credit to the interviewer, yeah. whoever he was. <laughs> 
Thank you. That almost mm-hmm. went under my head. Um, okay, so first, I asked Mick about songwriting. Yeah, I mean, songwriting to me is like, it's really, I mean, I love songwriting. It's like one of my favorite occupations out of all the things that I do. And I think it's because you just, it, with you don't need, you don't need, you know, a lot of um, equipment. You don't need a lot of time even. You just, you just can create something that hadn't existed before out of thin air and and you there you have something that's that people will enjoy if they like it if the, you know if it if if it's a song that people hear that they will that they will enjoy it for for a long time and it means a lot to people a song you know sometimes that they that they, they can really relate to it and that strikes a chord in them so all this can come out of just a very small amount of you know effort and time and you know it's kind of it, to my mind that's sort of a magical thing okay christopher did you hear that mm-hmm. okay <laughs> as i someone, love that okay but as someone who who is you, like your first career right now like your main career right now is songwriter am I, I am i am a songwriter right and it's a profession and it's something you do like would you say you write every day or uh most most weeks or i what do something creative every day okay Wow, that's a good that's a good life skill that you can do that. Um, but but the fact that Mick says that great songs come from a small amount of effort and time floors me, knowing how hard it is to write a song. Uh, but I I took it to mean compared to his other endeavors, like okay. let's say, you know, getting a Rolling Stones tour off the ground because he's absolutely absorbed in the business right. end of the Stones as well as the uh, performance end of it. So I took it to mean for him sitting down with a guitar and you know knocking out a tune is like a day at the beach. Okay. And and I you know what I really appreciate that. You could tell that it's his source of joy. It's yes. like he does all of this other stuff, but boy when you're just sitting there with a cup of coffee and a guitar, how great it is to have the freedom to do that. Yeah. And when you think about it, you know, you know, Keith had a lot to do with all those songs as well. Oh, but when yeah. you think about the depth of the lyrics of Sympathy for the Devil or mm-hmm. Gimme Shelter or any number of songs, and even, and, and even maybe not the depth of Miss You, but the feel of Miss You and Beast of Burden and Honky Tonk Women, you know, lyrically they may not have been poetry, but boy, oh. did they convey a feeling. You know, and yeah, bizarrely, I feel like the Rolling Stones, well, Jagger and Richards, have been underappreciated as songwriters, if that's possible. Right. I think it's because the aura of the band is so huge that people haven't sat there and gone, you know, this song, this gem, Wild Horses, yeah, it's going to be around in you know a hundred years or whatever, and it's still going to move people. Yes. Um, for whatever reason, I don't think they get the respect as songwriters. Yeah, I agree with you. They're not. They're rarely mentioned in the top, you know, top five or top ten songwriters ever. It's always Lennon McCartney first, and then, and then, boy, here's another segment we can go into. You know, where does uh, Neil Young fit in? Where does Bob Dylan fit in? You know, Dylan. Dylan often gets put above Lennon McCartney. Then them and then and then who's next is it neil young is it leonard cohen smoky robinson well yeah like he wrote just like pagliacci did i want to keep my sadness hit (laughs) that is great like smoky that's genius yeah right (laughs) and dylan called him america's greatest poet so you know and uh and joni of course but anyway that's a that's a different topic for another time some more mick for his man What's that? Have you got some more Mick for I us? I do, I do. Boy, 
That was the worst German accent I've ever heard. Okay, so I did ask I did ask Mick if his songs reflect his personality. In lyric writing, um, I mean, because the music, see, the music and the lyrics are really joy are really joined in this in in sort of popular song. They're not. It's hard to separate them. But as far as lyrics are concerned, you know, sometimes you write a song which is just based upon a. I like a phrase that you come up with, which is which is just a phrase that you like, and you just work it up. And other times you can come up that the song is really something that's really about you and how you feel about somebody or or another subject at that particular moment that's reflected in that in that uh, time frame. And so that you can you know you can find a lot about people from the lyrics they write if if they're coming from uh like a an unconscious place other times they're just you know just just a fun thing that you just do that's just you just take a phrase and rework it and rework it so yeah you can find a lot of stuff mick jagger in conversation with tom jokic from 2001 i'm christopher ward and this is famous lost words tom what's up next christopher even more from mick jagger and a story from a classic 60s band that will blow your mind. Don't forget, you can hear past episodes of Famous Lost Words by downloading the iHeartRadio app. Famous Lost Words is brought to you by Alarm Force. Managing your home is a lot of work, but securing it doesn't have to be. Let the professionals at Alarm Force take home security off your to-do list. With Alarm Force, you can rely on professional installation, dependable products, and industry-leading customer service. They provide protection for burglary, fire, and flood with a suite of smart home products like door locks, lighting, and thermostat, all controlled from anywhere in the world with the Alarm Force mobile app. No charge for installation with packages starting from only $29.99. Call 1-800-267-2001 or learn more at alarmforce.com. Okay, Christopher, so let's rejoin my conversation from 2001 with Mick Jagger. Right here, I'm asking him about being an older rock star, and oh my God, listen to how high my voice is here. A lot has been made about the age factor of of some of the older rockers that you guys are well into your 50s and 60s, and it's really a ridiculous notion, I think, because they missed the point that rock and roll has no rules, and that it is a relatively new phenomenon, so to set age limits on musicians is just kind of crazy. But it strikes me that you're not in this to prove anything, you're in this because you you need to make music. Would that be a correct assumption? Um, yeah, I mean, I, I just enjoy doing it, you know, and um, you know, I mean, I think you can be your, you know, I think that that this kind of music requires a kind of strong spirit, though, you know, you don't want spirit of tiredness, <laughs> you don't want spirit of, you know, you want spirit of, you know, energy, and, um, and you know, there's lots of people have energy, you know, I have a lot of energy, and my spirit has a lot of energy, so I am, as far as that's concerned, you know, I that's the way I feel I'm quite, um, I think that's important. If you're if you're older and you don't have the you know you don't have any energy and you don't have any spirit, then you know it's not going to work for you. And it doesn't matter what you do, whether it's whether it's um, you know writing songs or performing. But you know, it. I think it's fine as long as you have the a very kind of energetic spirit that you can that you can bring to this. And um, yeah, the music's not. I mean, music. As a as a as an art form, doesn't isn't necessarily 
for any particular age group to either perform or create or enjoy. You know, music can be enjoyed by everyone, you know, from little children to very old people. And as far as making music is concerned, making music can be done by children um, up to old people. It just depends whether you have the you have anything to give. There's uh there's been a, a lot of <clears throat> there's been a lot written about your personal life, Mick. What do you think about all the attention on private matters of celebrities? Um, well, it seems to be like an accelerating thing that people are more interested in than they ever were, and I don't really know. I don't really know why that should be, or why there's so much speculation more than there used to be. I mean, because nearly all the speculation is incorrect. And it's so sort of based upon just rumor and so on. Um, and very little hard information. So when you're looking at it from the inside, it seems like even more weird. So I don't really know, you know, why people are so interested in other people's lives. Maybe they find their own lives not very interesting. You have, um, you have a wide range of, uh, of children in a wide range of ages. What's the best part of being a dad to, to, uh, to children of, of such a <laughs> wide variety? <laughs> uh, <laughs> Well, you know, they—they're just—I mean, they're just a great source of, you know, pleasure, you know, to you. You know, anyone that's got kids knows how much. I mean, they can be a pain in the neck as well, you know. So you know, you have to be very patient. It, I think having children teaches you how to be, how to be patient. But you get a lot of fun out of them and a lot of joy out of them, and you get, you know, to you learn a lot about life through their eyes, you know, and you see. You see things the way you used to see them a lot, and um, and so that you know you get so much different kinds of pleasure. So when you have you know a lot of age ranges, you know you get the fun of you know seeing life through the eyes of a teenager or seeing it through the eyes of a two-year-old. What kind of a kid were you, uh, and are you still like that little boy from many years ago? For example, when you. <laughs> You know, you're, I guess you're always the same person that you were. You know, you can't be another person. You can change somewhat. But, you know, within you, I guess you're always, you know, that you, you're always that that kid is still alive in you somewhere. Um, and, you know, I was, I was always like a kid that liked to have a lot of laughs and a lot of fun and I liked to do imitations of people and I liked to sing and dance and, you know, and fool around. And, and I can see that that, that's still kind of there, you know. So I think you're always, you're always the child within you is uh, is always there, which is great. I mean, you, and you still got to remember it's still there. You know, that's one of the things you you always got to think of. And you know, I got to tell you, it felt good making Mick laugh on a couple of occasions. Just that little chuckle that he had. Yeah, and, I think he was really tickled by some of the questions. Yeah, and you know, and he's been asked everything right so right and and you know he was very you know i listened to this interview recently in the car with my girlfriend and and one of the things she said is is that he sounded like he was really zoned into what you were saying mm-hmm. you know he was on a phone line probably thousands tens of thousands of miles away from 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 me and yet he really listened carefully and he wasn't distracted you know you know what it's like to be on the phone sometimes you you don't hear every word but i mm-hmm. felt like he heard every word and i guess that's part of his job right is to really zone in and give listen, you a great 7 minutes to give you a great 7 minutes and it was only 7 <laughs> yeah. anyway at the uh, at the end of the interview i got a chance to ask him about george harrison who had died just a few days before this interview and here's what he had to say you know i hadn't seen george since for a good 
good few years. He came to um, a Stones concert um, in the theater that we did, and he was very kind of sweet and, um, you know, I had lots of good words to say about everybody, and he was charming and so on. And, you know, I was thinking, you know, you always think back about all the little times that you saw each other, and you think, you know, when, you know, what I always remember when they first when George first came to see a Stones gig when we were just playing little clubs and we hadn't made a record. And, you know, he was, like, very generous and, you know, uh, full of uh, laughs and advice at that point in his life. And, um, you know, it's it's very sad when, uh, when someone you've been known and acquainted with for all that many years, you know, passes on so because you like you feel a little bit of you is in there and um but he had a you know he had a, he had a very full life a very wonderful life um but it's very sad you know i'm very sad that he's no longer with us mick jagger in conversation with tom jokey from 2001 and that was a very touching quote yeah um you could tell they may not have been best friends but there was such high mutual respect and well, imagine the stories of even like him reminiscing about when they met. You know, it was probably downstairs at the Cavern Club when the mm-hmm. when the Beatles were making all this all this noise, and the Stones were just probably in the very early f- formative stages. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, Mick showing up, and then you know, people always pitted the Stones and the Beatles against each other. And I do not believe, other than maybe a friendly rivalry when their new album came out. Right. I don't believe that it was a bitter rivalry at all between them. I think they were very much friends in terms of professional friends anyway. I'm Christopher Ward, and this is Famous Lost Words. Tom, what's up next? This may be the oddest story that I have ever come across in the uh, in the interview archives so far. Well. And it's an interview with Denny Doherty from the Mamas and the Papas. I think it's from the early 80s or so. Not all of these uh, interviews are labeled properly, so I'm always having to guess based on what they're saying in the interview. Carbon dating them? Is that what yes, we're doing? That's yes, that's what I'm okay. doing. <laughs> and he tells a very unusual story about how Mama Cass Elliot, you know, a fine singer, like an mm. excellent singer, how she really got her voice. Have a listen to this. Mm. It's nuts. We came back down to L.A., and uh, by then, Cass had just started singing with us. Whether we liked it or not, she was going to sing with us. And it worked out. I mean, John heard this fourth part. There's a strange, there's a story I don't know if you've heard about, about Cass getting hit on the head with a, a length of copper pipe. This has happened, this happened. She tried singing with us in the islands, and Michelle's uh, contralto, Michelle's voice is kind of high, and Cass's voice is sort of in the middle. A lot of power, but couldn't get up in the upper registers. And while Duffy was gutting his hotel to build this nightclub, there was a workman who took a, an ice machine apart, and there was a copper coil that he took out, and there was a balcony just down to Creaky Alley. That's where the entrance to Duffy's was, was in Creaky Alley. And he threw the copper coil over into the pile of rubble downstairs, but Cass was coming through the entrance, and he hit her on top of the head and knocked her cold in the creaky alley. But when she woke up, she had another note, a tone and a half on top of her register. She could sing up there. I don't know. Thank you, God. Who knows how it happened. But that happened. So there you go. Unbelievable. That's ridiculous. Yes, it is. It's so ridiculous that I wonder, you know, perhaps Denny... Embellished? Misremembers mis- <laughs> that based on... <laughs> An on, apocryphal tale, yeah. as they call them. And by the way, he was a great storyteller. He mm-hmm. died just a few years ago. I be- Well, I know he died. I just can't quite remember when it was. Hang on. It's a few years he, now. Yeah he, yeah, he was a remarkable singer, too. 
I mean, you think that vocal on Monday, Monday. Oh, and, I know. Oh. And, 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 and a great storyteller and a great guy, and uh, and he will certainly uh, be missed. But that story, I wonder about a little bit. You get hit on the head hmm. by a copper copper pipe, copper tubing, and all of a sudden you can hit higher notes? I don't know about that one. <laughs> We're going to have a whole bunch of young singers all across the country now getting themselves hit on the head <laughs> to broaden their range. <laughs> Do not try this at home, kids. Okay, coming up next on Famous Lost Words, When Rock Stars Attack. This is Famous Lost Words, a deep dive into the musical archives. I'm Christopher Ward with my co-host, Tom Jokic. Now, Tom, you were listening to an interview with Buffalo Springfield from, what, like the mid-'80s? How's that possible? And when I saw that it was Buffalo Springfield, I went, okay, that is not possible. They were not around. They broke up, what, in the late-'60s, late I think? Mm. And uh, this is from the mid-'80s, and it was Buffalo Springfield Revisited. Ah. That's the name of the group. So they got uh, Bruce Palmer is the guy we're talking about, and he got the rights to uh, to tour under that name. So, uh, so the principals so must have agreed to that. They must have. Yeah, they must have. So Bruce Palmer was in Buffalo Springfield, right? And he went on to play bass with Crosby, Stills, Nash, and Young. But that plan hit a snag because of one person. David Crosby and I did not match. We, he's probably one of the only person persons in the world that that I couldn't get along with at all We'd, in, in a room uh, or playing music it was impossible to uh, to, to blend with a man he, he wasn't uh, he wasn't affable to me or I to him he was belligerent and and and, and obstinate and horrible and uh, conceited and all the things that I didn't really consider uh, human so I, it got to the point where it was either him or me and we both realized it had to be him because he had the name on the album. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> oh, that's, that's tough. Yeah. Tough talk from Bruce Palmer, the late Bruce Palmer. Yeah. Well, you know, uh, I, I Toronto, interviewed Crosby. He's he, a Toronto guy. He's a Toronto guy, yeah. Yeah. I interviewed Crosby, and it was when his autobiography came out. And he was happy to admit to all of his weaknesses and his foibles. I'm probably including egotism and to say nothing of weapons charges and drug-related uh, issues. Um, but he was also uh, funny and warm and genuine. He was a really good listener. Mm-hmm. And um, it was a fantastic interview. In fact, we, we should play bits of that sometime in the very near future. Sure. I would love to hear it. I've heard some interviews from him just in the last year. Mm-hmm. And he has been like that person you've talked about, really, really warm, really personable, really, like, very honest. And they were, uh, someone was asking him, why did you get booted out of the birds? And he said, oh, because I was a complete dink. Right? But he would... <laughs> is that <laughs> the word he used? No, Come on. it was much worse when, right. he, when he used it. And he's so funny about what a jerk he really was that it's really endearing. Like, you, you love him because he is so self-effacing, self Self-defecating, as I like to say, and <laughs> and so he, uh, yeah, he he was very much like that, and it was uh, it made for a, a much more fun interview to listen to. He was great. I mean, he was very lucid, and that wasn't mm-hmm. what I was expecting given his history. Yeah, but he told me something funny. I was interviewing him at the Four Seasons in Toronto, and we were overlooking uh, the original site of the Riverboat Cafe. And he had been there, and he had met Joni Mitchell there. Mm-hmm. I washed dishes there, by the way. Uh, <laughs> During that time? Uh, no, just later. Okay. But um, I hope so, buddy. Like, yeah. how old are you? <laughs> um, and he said, Joni taught me two things. He said, she taught me how to use open tunings on guitar. 
And he said that led to my whole sort of songwriting explosion. And he said, and she taught me to write stuff down. Because he said before then, he figured if he didn't remember it, it wasn't worth remembering. <laughs> Isn't that wow. weird? Wow. I know. Imagine how many great ideas, concepts, melodies got lost because Crosby was arrogant enough or and wasted, man. <laughs> wasted enough to not write any of that stuff down, right? Yeah. Oh, well. Anyway. He was eight miles high. What can he say? <laughs> so every week we look back at a great song from the past. And this week it's a song that had a very distinctive sound. And it was a huge departure from their previous sound. And the song is Jive Talking by the Bee Gees. Okay. And that's one of your, is that your favorite? Would you say that's your favorite Bee Gees song or one of them? Oh, I love that song. And it was so unexpected if you knew the Bee Gees history. Mm-hmm. And, and fortunately I did when I went into the interview because they were tough. This is a group of guys who did not suffer fools gladly. And they'd been raked over the coals by the press. They were very suspicious, particularly somebody coming from a video channel. And mm-hmm. they were not of that era. Yeah. But, you know, when you get a chance to show them that you have respect and some knowledge of their work, they tell you great stuff. Right. And, uh, and one of the things you ask them about is uh, how the song Jive Talking came about. I'll never forget when I heard Jive Talk, and this is a fan response to you, but I remember I was driving along in my car. It was one of those times when you actually stop the car and right. you go, I can't believe this song. And I, of course, like many other fans, I'm sure I told you, I had no idea who it was. Mm-hmm. Right. But by the end of it, before I heard the announcer, I, I said, I know those voices. And, I know, and now, of course, it sounds quintessentially Bee Gees, but mm-hmm. at the time it sounded so different yeah. from what you had done. Well, we were coming out of hiatus. We were coming out of a period of time where we hadn't really had a record out in four or five years. Mm-hmm. So that sort of uh, added to the mystery. And uh, the fact that you might have known who we were, but in fact the, the music was so different than what we'd been doing uh, that you weren't sure who it was. And, um, mm-hmm. yeah. But that, uh, the idea of that song came from... Um, a, a, an old bridge in Miami which we used to drive over every night to go to the studio, Criteria and one night during those sessions we drove over this bridge and the actual clickety click whatever it was was happening to the wheels of the cars it was going over the bridge mm. and, and the concept for the song came right and the title came there and there and we got home, I think we finished the song that That's night right, yeah, yeah. So hence the kind of approach. Yeah. 40 miles an hour is exactly the right tempo. Not beats per minute, but miles per hour. It was 120 beats per minute right on the nose. Now, we played it to a reef, and a reef set the groove for it and set the tempo. The reef was great at that, you see. A reef would point you in directions. It was, you know, and he pointed out what jive talking, you know, it's like a black expression for bullshit, and we get all into that sort of thing, you know. Excuse the French. So... You know, he gave us a direction for it and set the tempo and we cut the back track. You see, in those days it was great fun because there was no drum machines, you know. You, mm. you cut a track, you cut as a band. And uh, we used to do all the percussion ourselves. We'd mm. all go out there, Reef would go out and play cowbell. We'd yeah. all play oh, certain yeah, things. Yeah. Now yeah. you just program all that stuff and don't worry about it. But Come give me an hour and I'll program it in. Come back later. Yeah. 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 All right, that's Christopher in conversation with Barry, Morris, and Robin, the Bee Gees. You know, Christopher, mm-hmm. you were... Um, boasting about your time with the Bee Gees. <laughs> Let me tell you my story about the Bee Gees. Please. Okay? So what, what year do you think that was when you talked to them? Oh. About what year? I, no one said there'd be questions. <laughs> uh, so I, I, I've seen the video. 80, 
eight, okay, maybe eighty nine. Okay, so around the song, around the time of the song one, you remember, you remember that song? Mm-hmm. Maybe one day, you maybe you and I will be one. By the way, which sounded like Jive Talking. Baby, Jive Talking, oh, right? Wow. You know the song one sounds like they're ripping off Jive Talking. Just. Just, Can you rip off yourself? Well, exactly. I don't think they'll sue themselves, but depends who owns. Although it, it did happen. Yes, John Fogerty. John Fogerty got got sued by himself because, <laughs> oh, that's a long story. Okay, we've got to tell the story now. Um, so Saul Zantz was the owner of the record company and the owner of many of the masters mm-hmm. that uh, CCR recorded, and so and when, presumably the publishing. Right. Right. That's probably more correct than mm. than uh, than the owner of the, uh, Master the masters, records, right? Yeah. So John Fogerty records a song, "The Old Man Down the Road." Is that the song? And it sounds like "Run Through the Jungle" by CCR. So Saul Sands <laughs> sues John Fogerty for ripping himself off. So strange. Of course, Fogarty got him back and recorded a song called Zance Can't Dance. That's right. That's yeah. right. And Fogarty also wrote maybe the worst uh, biography I've, uh, autobiography I've read recently. His, oh. his book was not that good because he spent too much time blaming other people for, uh, uh, for his life. Yeah, especially his former bandmates, talking about how they couldn't play their instruments and that kind of thing. Nice. Anyway, so we are going, let's go back talking about uh, uh, the Bee Gees. And I I just want to draw everyone's attention to a great article from Rolling Stone from 2014. It's called The Last Brother. It's a really good piece about Barry Gibb being the last Bee Gees standing. And it kind of picks up in this segment here where uh, Morris has died and now only Robin and Barry are left. So the only two left were the two who'd never gotten along, Robin and Barry, says this article. And they tried to organize a tribute concert for Morris, but they couldn't even agree on that. Mm-hmm. The distance between us became more and more dramatic, Barry says. There were times we didn't talk for a year. Anyway, in 2012, uh, Robin got quite sick. Barry visited him in the hospital where Robin told him he loved him, and six weeks after that he was gone. Mm-hmm. Um, Barry says that when it comes to his brothers, my only regret is that we weren't great pals at the end. There was always an argument in some form. Even when Andy left to go to L.A., and that was many years earlier, he wanted to make it on his own. Morris was gone in two days, so they didn't have much, you know, really any warning that Morris was going to die. And they weren't getting along well at the time. Robin and I functioned musically, says Barry, but we never functioned in any other way. We were brothers, but we weren't really friends. Wow. There were too many bad times and not enough good times, says Barry finally. A few more good times would have been wonderful. Isn't that awful? That's, yeah, that's touching and sad and, and yet not surprising when you consider that whole you know brother relationship thing yeah. in bands. I mean, there's just... The rock and roll highway is littered with the bodies of brothers that couldn't get along yes. on and off stage. Yeah. You know, whether it's um, you know the brothers in the Kinks or in Oasis or the Everly Brothers, yeah. or you know, it just goes on. Yeah, Liam and Noel, you need to patch things up and just get back together now, okay? For all of us Oasis fans, sorry, that's just a. I just need to throw that in. Thank you. Well. There you have it, episode two of Famous Lost Words. I'm Christopher Ward with Tom Jokic. Special thanks to our producer, Adam Karsh. See you next time.